Reeling from all the terrible news, but not sure how to take action? I'm Kelly. I'm Lila. And this is What Can I Do? Each week, we interview activists about how they took action, what got them started, who helped them along the way, and what they'd do differently next time. In the process, we offer concrete advice on how to take the leap from freaking out on Twitter to making a difference. So let's get started. Hi, everyone. I am Kelly Pollack. This is What Can I Do, the podcast where we help you figure out how to go out and make a difference, even in places you didn't realize you could. I am here with my co-host, Lila Nordstrom. Hi, Lila. Hey, Kelly. How are you? I am uh, excited. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm really excited, actually, to talk a little bit about rural politics. Today, we have Chloe Maxman and Canyon Woodward, who are the authors of Dirt Road Revival and featured in the upcoming film Rural Runners. Welcome, you guys. And why don't you uh, start us off by telling us a little bit about yourselves? Hey, y'all. It's it's awesome to be here with you today. My name's Canyon. Um, I'm from uh, the western tip of North Carolina, the southern Appalachians, uh, a super rural pretty conservative area um and yeah I'm, I'm a trail runner and political strategist and got to got to manage um the campaigns for for chloe up in maine running for state representative and then state senator in 2018 and 2020 and yeah we're the, the co-authors of dirt road revival and my name is chloe it's so wonderful to talk with all of you today. I live in Maine. I grew up here. I am a state senator and I love talking about rural politics. So I'd love to hear from each of you sort of how you got your start because you had a background in activism in organizing before these campaigns uh, for state house and state senate. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that background and how sort of the the useful skills that you learned in that that you were able to then take to these races in Maine. Yeah, I can. I'm happy to start. I, you know, yeah, like you mentioned, we we got our start really in, in the climate movement, where we started the fossil fuel divestment campaign at, at Harvard that was eventually successful in getting Harvard to take its, its endowment out of fossil fuel companies. And that was really the bulk of my education in college was, was getting to organize with, with Chloe and with other folks um, around divestment and learn from some amazing professors who, who had grassroots organizing backgrounds and I think a lot of the skills that we learned in the climate movement were, were pretty directly transferred to our approach to the campaigns in Maine and trying to basically flip the scripts on how things are typically done in state level politics, where it's pretty top down and, you know, consultant heavy, where it's like, OK, here's here's the way things are done. You spend two thirds of your budget on consultants and kind of every campaign looks more or less, more or less the same. And we tried to really flip that and we turned down the consultants and really just focused on the grassroots and organizing a huge volunteer campaign to go out and knock on doors and talk to folks face to face. I echo everything that Canyon just said. I think we were also really motivated by 
kind of like questioning what political power looks like. And I think coming from a more of a social movement space, there's, there's so much power in in social movement organizing. I mean, it's you know, it, what brings us together and, and builds community and creates a sense of, of urgency and uh, like really propels forward all of the huge issues of our time. But there's also historically been a gap between a lot of the movement power and the political electoral power that we need to see our social justice goals be fulfilled. And so we were really interested in trying to see if we could kind of smush them together and build a social political movement that had the dual purpose of building these relationships in our community, doing a lot of deep grassroots rural organizing in a way that, you know, wasn't necessarily tied to a candidate, but that was really grounded in the community. And then at the same time, you're also electing a candidate and creating a political conversation that's focused on climate justice and racial justice and uh, economic viability in rural spaces. And um, I think that was that was important to us too, just to kind of think about that power. I'm curious, and in particular for Chloe, although I'm interested to hear about this for both of you, because you went back and ran in your home community, did you grow up in a political family? Did you have political ties to your community before you kind of went off to school and got involved in the climate movement? Was this a departure in some way or had some of these skills already been in play before you left? I guess I never really thought of my family as political, but my family was definitely like politically aware and you know, my family had run for office or, or served, but you know, we certainly... I certainly remember talking about politics within my family and some of my earliest political memories are my parents watching Bill Clinton's impeachment trials. Um, I just remember that so clearly in the theme song from the news hour with Jim Lehrer, just like playing <laughs> all the time in my, in my childhood. And I did a lot of work around environmentalism and climate issues in my community growing up, but I never really thought of it as political because I kind of think of politics as kind of like having a bit of an alienating subtext, you know, like there's kind of two sides to it. And, and what we were doing wasn't, didn't really feel political, but the more that I did that kind of community work, the more that I realized that it's really hard to escape what's political. And when we're talking about tackling any major issue that affects our lives today, it always circles back to politics and more importantly, the people that we elect. Um, and I think, you know, I kind of, there's like so many different stories that we have about why things are the way that we they are. And I, um, you know, I definitely was in the story for a long time and it was corporations that were really taking over our political system. And that's obviously very, very true. But then one day I was like, oh, but wait a second, it's the people that we elect that allow them to have this this huge influence over our community. And that really has trickled down to, to rural communities like ours, where there's just so little faith in our political system. There's so little trust in anything, you know, in, in a new candidate, in an old candidate, in the process. It's all but disappeared because these structures have failed us so deeply. And I think that's kind of been a common theme throughout throughout my life. You put all of that so well, Chloe. I- I think I'll jump in just really quickly to say somewhat, somewhat similar on, on my end. I was really lucky to have, you know, parents and a family that 
instilled, you know, a strong environmental ethic and, you know, dragged me along to Iraq war peace vigils as a, you know, as a middle schooler um, who slightly embarrassed to be seen outside, outside the courthouse at a peace vigil because it wasn't cool. Uh, <laughs> but I really pretty much ran away from electoral politics as, as much as I could pretty much like well into college, I would say. Um, and it wasn't until just being really deep in the climate movement and realizing that the reason we weren't getting anything done meaningfully on, on climate or on so many other issues is because of the people that we have in office. Um, and that's what, that's what led me to, to get engaged with politics, to, to work on Bernie's campaign when I graduated and then to do this work with Chloe. And I think, yeah, that feels like the biggest thing that I try to impress on folks, especially folks of our generation that who are, who are largely, yeah, really disillusioned with electoral politics for good reason is just like when we, when we run away from it, you know, that, that lets the bad guys win. Basically it's, you know, it's, it's toxic and it's divisive and so much of it is, is corrupt and, and taken over by, you know, by big money and big oil. Um, but the only way that we can combat that and, and make, lasting changes by holding our noses and wading into the muck and, and engaging with it. So let's talk some then about the muck <laughs> and wading into it. <laughs> I, what I am uh, particularly interested in is uh, the the things that are, there's a lot about organizing that is just organizing and, and you know, you have to think about it very flexibly, no matter what context, but the things that are specific to rural organizing. Uh, so for instance, I know that things like knocking on doors is just very, very different in a rural environment than in a city where all the buildings are super close to each other and you can hit a million in a block at once. So I wonder if you could talk some about those particular sort of logistical issues that are unique to rural organizing. Uh, so both the sort of door knocking kind of stuff, but also things like even the language that you use, the kinds of mailings that you might send out, those sorts of things, what that looks like in a rural environment. Chloe, maybe you could start with uh, sort of experiences that I know you spent hours and hours and hours and hours door knocking and, and what that kind of looked like and felt like. Yeah, I've done a lot of door knocking in more urban spaces and definitely easier. Like you said, you can knock on just a lot more doors because everything's more dense. I think since so, so many campaigns often focus on urban spaces that um, people have their doors knocked on multiple times. But when you're out, you know, at the end of a dirt road, so many times we've heard from people that we were the first politician um, just in general to come out and knock on their door and take the time to listen to them. So there's you know, that really special quality, that, that opportunity there. Um, you know, it's in districts like the ones that we ran in and all across rural America, you know, it's not a given that you're going to have cell phone service as well. And so I think, you know, we often think about safety and what it means to send volunteers out and, and all of that stuff. Um, and yeah, it just takes a lot longer to knock, to knock a lot of doors. But I think it's also really beautiful. People are almost always very kind and, um, 
and there is just this appreciation that you have taken the time to do something that is uh, different. And Chloe, you even knocked on doors with people who had like Trump flags out front. Can you talk about that and your decisions to sort of engage with everybody? Yeah, and in districts and most districts in rural America, you know, you can't just win with the Democratic vote. Um, the Democratic lost a lot of traction in, in rural places. And so that means going out and talking to independents and Republicans and uh, having tough conversations about politics and what they think about Democrats and trying to find that common ground. Um, you know, so we knocked on a lot of doors that had Trump signs out there and, and oftentimes there'd be a Trump sign next to a Chloe sign. And, um, you know, and I, I think it's also important to say that we didn't compromise our values or any of the ways that we view the world when we were having these conversations. It was really about finding that common ground and realizing that you can have that common ground with someone who the who we're taught to think uh, is very distant from us. I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about the way that you evaluate success when you begin a project in a rural community. I know, you know, my, my parents live in a rural community upstate that my grandparents had lived in and we, but I grew up in New York city. And so we, I've sort of like seen how they have had to approach political involvement in both places. And I think one of the things that I think is really interesting about their involvement in this rural village in upstate New York is that their success markers look very different. They're often, like you're saying, engaging with voters that don't share their politics necessarily. And they're in an environment where a lot of the party structures are not really like supportive or available to them in the same way that they are in the city. And, but because of that, they have had to do a lot of their own data work. They've had to kind of figure out how to evaluate their successes on their own. So I'm curious if you have faced some of those challenges as well. I'm sure that you have, at least in terms of feeling like a lot of party infrastructure is not available to you and what you've done to sort of figure out how to evaluate what, what's working and what's not working. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that the state, the state parties and the, the state campaign um, apparatus do a lot with a little, but, you know, especially at the state legislative level, there's just, there's really not the funding that there ought to be. Um, nowhere near like the money that gets poured into congressional races. And unfortunately, I, I think there's been a pretty active decision um, in the party over the past decade to prioritize resources for campaigns in the most densely populated areas, the, the cities and, and increasingly the suburbs. And there's been a huge disinvestment in organizing infrastructure and, and resources for rural districts. So, um, you know, you're starting out from, from pretty much scratch oftentimes if you're, if you're running for office in, in a district like where Chloe, Chloe ran in 2018 that has a, that had a 16 point Republican advantage. Yeah. So I think we need, we need to take a hard look at that and electoral costs of that. You know, you look at like my home state of North Carolina, where we have a democratic governor and, and yet end up with Republican supermajorities in the state legislature because we've seeded all of 
all of the rural districts. And yeah, so I think the the biggest thing is is a need to to reinvest in rural organizing. So uh, one of the things, and we're sort of talking around this a little bit, but one of the things I know that uh, that you have both thought about is this idea of sort of uh, the sustainability of organizing. And so, you know, anyone who has worked in politics or has even thought about working in politics knows that it's a bust and boom kind of like every four years, there's lots of jobs available and they're available for a little bit of time and then there's no jobs. And, you know, it, it's not uh, it's not sustained over the long term. And so uh, in your book, at one point, you make this uh, metaphor about organizers needing to not just light a fire, but tend the fire, nurture the flames. And I think that's especially important in this rural setting because, you know, where I live in Chicago, I could easily, you know, walk out the door and stumble upon a Democratic Party operative. And it's very easy to sort of stay engaged all the time. But in a rural place where there has been uh, so little investment recently, that must be much harder. Could you talk a little bit about that piece of it, that sort of finding ways to keep these things going beyond just the outrage at a a little individual thing or an election that pops up, but sort of continuing this community building? Yeah, such a good question. And I think it's at the heart of so much, you know, like social social movements are are long-term visions and they, you know, they have their ebbs and flows. And it's so important that we have infrastructures that can hold that I think I think that that exists really well when we're talking about issue organizing um even in in more rural spaces that can exist sometime you know or like I often think about all the folks who volunteer to help out at the food banks or at the libraries you know to me that's like a type of social movement that's really engaging people in good work in their communities but politics is really different because we have this really intense campaign that ends on a certain day and like all the resources and the entire goal is to get to that one day. And then the whole infrastructure disappears. And what, what we, what we've thought about and tried to do with our campaigns. And, you know, I think there's, there's so much more to do is say, okay, we built this movement. We have all of these volunteers who are engaged. You know, how do we create a story here that really goes beyond a candidate and that really goes beyond election day? And does that mean that we use our campaign, like when COVID hit, we used our campaign infrastructure to draw a mutual aid network and that lasted far beyond election day or you know, after 2018, some of our volunteers got together and they formed a little local group that ended up doing a lot of amazing work in in one of the towns in the district, you know, and so it's like, how can we just start to think about this in a different way so that we're not just expecting it all to disappear in November? Just, yeah, agreeing wholeheartedly with that and and to say, you know, I think especially in rural areas, like like you alluded to, it's got to be about community because, we're oftentimes not going to to win, so it can't just be about the outcomes. It's got to be it's got to be about the process too, and and making it fun, making it making it something that people want to be a part of and feel fulfilled fulfilled in, you know, regardless of the outcome. Um, and so to that end, you know, we always tried to tried to make like our canvassing days for example we'd we'd have music and and try and have food and we'd have everybody come back at the same time regardless of whether they'd finished their canvassing list or not so that we could you know sit in a circle and debrief any crazy conversations and just like 
be in community together and have the opportunity to build the relationships that make people want to keep coming back and feel feel sustained and supported in the work. I'm curious for Chloe in particular, how did you make the choice to kind of transition from movement politics into actually running for office? And, you know, we like to keep things very action oriented on this podcast. So I'm sort of curious, like what steps led to that decision and then what steps you actually took once you realized, hey, maybe I should run here. There are so many awesome resources out there for folks who are interested in running for office. One of my favorite is um, a program called Emerge that trains Democratic women to run for office. And I had been through an Emerge training program a couple years before I decided to run. And I was like, okay, I think I want to run. But in my mind, genuinely, I thought that you had to, like, that I as a woman would have to be married, have kids, have a law degree. And, you know, kind of be in my forever home and then I could run for office. You know, so I was kind of like thinking about that for maybe a decade down the road. But I had actually just been down to North Carolina to see Canyon. And we have just always talked about rural politics and how we really want to bring so much of the social movements and progressive values that have shaped us back to our rural conservative communities. And I, I got back from a trip visiting with him and it just kind of, me like oh hold on a second you know maybe like maybe young people can run for office and one of my friends who had also done fossil fuel divestment work had run and won in Wisconsin and I was so inspired by her work her her name's Greta Neubauer she's amazing um you know so we just decided to to launch into it and see and see what could happen I think a lot of it was an experiment because we really wanted to do things differently. We had both worked on campaigns before and we had a pretty specific vision and theory of change that we wanted to test out and we were just blessed that we had the opportunity to do it. So I have one more question that I think Canyon is is mostly for you, although I think it's for both of you, but I noticed how important physical activity is for you. So you mentioned that you're a trail runner. Uh, that's obviously a very important part of your life. Can you talk a little bit about sort of finding a balance when you're doing something so intense, like running for office and running for office while also working because, you know, you can't pay yourself to run for office, you know, or running a campaign. How you balance that with the need to to have something else, something else in your life that is not just this overwhelming campaign? Yeah, that's such a huge question. I think burnout culture is so pervasive in, in progressive organizing. Um, and that was that was a huge thing that Chloe and I talked about from the get-go was wanting to shift that culture and and figure out a better way to do things. And, you know, I think that we succeeded in a ton of ways and, and also still ran into, into just when you have an election coming on a certain on a certain day it's um, so hard not to just drop everything and and pour every minute into that but we carved out space intentionally to um, prioritize the other parts of ourselves like for for me in particular getting getting outdoors and trail running is a big part of that just like feeding that other part of me that that allows me to recharge the batteries and and come back as sort of my full full self to have the energy to push through the organizing day after day because these are these are long-term fights it's not we don't 
get there in an election cycle or a couple of election cycles. It's the long distance grind of, of decades. And so we've got to look out for ourselves as happy whole humans in that process. And that's kind of a theme of, of the film, the short film, Rural Runners. Um, and that's going to be available for listeners. You can go to dirtroadrevival.com and fill out a form to request a screening and, and bring some some friends together and Chloe and I are doing an organizing tour around that in the fall, kind of jumping off of the themes of, of the campaigns. Um, so that's another resource for folks. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about your book and about rural runners and, you know, all of the ways in which you've, it seems like you're really working hard to kind of reveal the rural advocacy playbook uh, so that other people can access it. So um, tell us a little bit about uh, those projects. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it was inspired by just starting starting out at this and like Chloe alluded to, like feeling so underprepared, like having a vision of like, you know, you have to have a law degree and all of these things to get started. And so, you know, our goal is to break down some of, of the barriers and share some of the lessons that we've learned in doing this work to make it more accessible for other folks to just jump into it. And so... That's that's the focus of the book and of the short film is sharing reflections and and lessons that we've learned through through our experiences and hopefully planting some seeds to inspire some other other folks to run for office and to get involved with organizing on campaigns and um, give them give them some of the tools and support that's needed to do that. I think any listener of this podcast will uh, appreciate that you have a lot of like action items in the book. <laughs> a lot of like, this is exactly how Heck, you can yeah. do this too. <laughs> <laughs> We're all about action items, <laughs> and we really, we really want to support too. So our website's dirtroadrevival.com, where where folks can organize a film screening or just reach out to us with with questions about getting Im- involved, whether as a volunteer or if you're thinking of running for office, um, we'd, we'd love to chat. Well, thanks so much for joining us. This is really great. And I love the idea of reconnecting with rural areas, not writing areas off, but realizing, you know, what, what you were talking about, the sort of all the things we have in common and the common concerns that we have, I think is, is so important. So uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks guys. Yeah. Thanks for telling me Thank you. Thanks for listening to What Can I Do? You can find show notes and credits for this episode at whatcanidopodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio used by What Can I Do is in the public domain or used with permission. Original artwork is by Matthew Wesson and used with express permission. You can find us on Twitter at whatcanidopod. To contact us with questions or guest suggestions, please email hello at whatcanidopodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review and tell your friends.